What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. All right, baby, you in? I'm in, baby. Let's do it. All right, baby. Listen, guys, welcome to the Full Blast Podcast. I'm Jeff Fader, and my brother, Brian House, is here. My boy, Brian House, is here. Before we get into it with Brian, let's just take care of a little business. Number one, first things first, Broadback Ironworks, makers of the 2x72 grinder. This is a 2x72 grinder made by knife makers for metal workers. Anybody removing material, they do a great job. They have great attachments and i am a fan of theirs and i just want you to know they're having a special sale from november 15th through to november 30th it's the black friday sale it is uh great and you should take advantage of it all their different packages and stuff like that in in me in the meantime if you go to broadbackironworks.com put in the promo code knife talk 10 you can get 10 percent off all their grinders attachments parts all that stuff so thank you once again to ben and the boys over at uh and Ryan and Vince and all the guys over Broadbeck Ironworks. Next is my friends at Even Heat. Even Heat are the manufacturer of the finest heat treat ovens available. Find your next oven. Go to evenheat-hill.com. Definitely check out what they have. They're very uh, intuitive in terms of what uh, makers need. Uh, if you're a tool maker, you're a knife maker, uh, the tap control makes it is a very, very easy to work with. It's almost like having like an iPad that you can program all your things on. It has made my life so much easier when I'm scrolling down to figure out what my heat treat schedules are. Easy to program. And if it's not, if it's if it's too much for you, you get their turn and burn. The turn and burn is a new thing where you set it and forget it. Definitely check out that their solid state drive make sure everything is dialed in your temperature dialed in so go check out what's going on over even heat that's even heat-kiln.com tell them we sent you i'm with you uh next are my friends now in australia nordic edge that's at nordic underscore edge or nordic edge.com.au they are an Aust- they're an australian company making pro tools for knife makers bladesmiths blacksmiths even you, you you're in australia you want to get involved with this knife making this is your this is your opportunity so check out what they have they're very involved with the knife making community including mert fought mert tansu has designed their file guide it's the big mert that thing is a monster and if you're in the united states you want to know what that's all about go to knife kits dot uh com in atlanta they have that their brooch saws their bevel jigs it's a great opportunity if you're an australian knife maker and you're looking to get uh, stock to resupply definitely check out those guys are jamie bishop's teaching classes uh, i think that they're teaching a lot of blacksmithing classes and if you wanted tongs or hammers all that stuff definitely check out what's going on with my boys over at nordicedge.com.au and if you're in australia uh, not in Australia. If you're in Canada, you go to Maritime Knife Supply. That's MaritimeKnifeSupply.com. And let me tell you what. I just got a package from uh, Lawrence Lake up, up in Canada. I'm in New York. I ordered it on Tuesday night. It arrived Friday morning. I, it, it, and there was no customs things. There was no bullshit. It was great. He sent me the belts that I needed, and he threw in a pen and some mints, frankly. it was I, I don't know if he's telling me something, but he met me in Maker Camp. He might have been telling me something. My breath bound up good, but I'm with him. If you are looking for anything, I was last week I had on Noah Vachon. He gets everything from Maritime Knife Supply. It's made his life easier, especially as a 
Canadian knife maker, but Americans can deal with it too. And if you get a 10-pack of abrasive belts, you get 10% off if you go to MaritimeKnifeSupply.com. And if you are a knife maker who are using Maritime Knife Supply, tell Lawrence what you need, and he'll get it for you. Uh, file guides, uh, broach, broaching tools, um, the uh, the Rockwell chisels that Matt Parkinson makes. He does a lot of great stuff, so definitely check out what's going on with Maritime Knife Supply. Really had a good time with him at Maker Camp. He is dynamite. Uh, next are my friends at... Trojan Horse Forge, that's Sam and Jeff. They're making making—they're the makers of the Stable Rail Knife Finishing Vice. These vices are built in the heart of Texas. They will take your handle sculpting and knife making to a whole new level. Definitely check out what's going on. When you get one of these way overbuilt vices, they're amazing. They come with a platform with rubber on it so you can hand sand your knives with comfort. And let me tell you what. Every knife that comes out of this shop goes on the, the Stable Rail Knife Finishing twice, my Vice twice. Once for the blade, once for the handle. It is awesome. And you can also check out their um, handle press attachment for the vise. So it allows you to glue in your hidden tang knife uh, comfortably with the vise. And then also check out that T4 Sentinel oil. That stuff is awesome. So go to TrojanHorseForge.com. And then you put in the promo code FULLBLAST10. It's going to get you 10% off all your stuff. Many thanks to my friends at Trojan Horse Forge. I just finished gluing up a piece of copper mascus, copper mascus from Baker Forge and Tool. Let me tell you what, this stuff is awesome. If you want to put some razzle dazzle in your in your situation, go get yourself some of that uh, exotic steel from Baker Forge and Tool. It's BakerForge.com. I already, I'm going to have Koi on at some point. We've got to talk uh, sooner rather than later. It is amazing what he's doing. And let me explain to you if you're a novice knife maker and you're looking to try this out. This stuff is very easy to use. It all comes in yield. It is very user-friendly. You don't need, I mean, you would probably, I would suggest you would have a kiln. But other than that, everything else is very easy to go. It's easy, They're easy to drill, easy to cut with your shitty bandsaw. Don't worry about that. It is dynamite stuff. And then when you're finished etching it, get yourself some of that gator piss. That's G-A-T-O-R-P-I-S-S. And you know what gators serve for gators, alligators, and piss short for urine. So get yourself some of that gator piss. And if you are in the EU, get yourself some gator piss at diyeurope.eu for all your gator piss needs. Uh, highly recommend it. And if you use the promo code full blast at uh, bakerforge.com, you're going to get 10% off all your stuff. Many thanks. I'm psyched. I'm fired up. Uh, this stuff is awesome. I've been using this stuff for a while, all his different steels and the gator piss. You know, here's the funny thing about the gator piss. I know a lot of really high level knife makers who are like, oh, I don't use, I don't like the name. I don't like the name. Meanwhile, they have it when you see a picture in their shop. They all have it. So they're using it. Whether or not they don't like the name, they're using it. Trust me. I get guys who are giving me grief about it. Meanwhile, they're sending me screenshots of their gator piss. Fine. Well, just well, don't worry about it. Just keep it to yourself. You don't have to tell your customers everything, for Christ's sakes. You know, come on. So get yourself some of that gator piss. Get yourself 10% off with uh, Full Blast. What did I say? Full blast. All right. Next is my friends at Total Boat. Total Boat makes really great paints, paints, primers, primers, abrasives, polishing compounds. It is great stuff. I just used their two-part epoxy for my handle scales. I really, really like it. And if you go to 
totalboat.com slash full blast, you will definitely get a, that's the, that's a link affiliate code that will get you um, money off and it'll get me a little bit of dough and it'll give me some street cred. I need street cred with my friends over at Total Boat. You know what I'm saying? So go check out the Total Boat. Get yourself some of that UV clear resin. Get all that different. It's marine grade stuff. So people say, I only use marine grade. This is Total Boat. Boat is in the second part of the name, Total Boat. So get yourself some of that at totalboat.com slash full blast. I just talked to my friends at GL Hansen & Sons. They're the makers of G Carter, which is a unique composite of natural fibers and fabrics mixed under epoxy under pressure with heat. Damn, girl. This stuff is awesome. I just put a knife together with the hoopla. Hoopla is awesome. It's just colorful. It's cross-cut micarta with different colors and different patterns. It is really dynamite stuff. And they have other types of materials they have or designs. They got Bofa, Ripple Cut, Tuxini, Tuxini by Mikey, Mahi Mahi, Radio Worm, G Carta, Pheasant, Colorama, Hoopla. All these things are different colors and they are just going to give you some action for for what you want. So definitely check out what's going on there. Go to uh, gcarta.bigcartel.com. Get yourself some of that. Uh, Bofa, get yourself some of the hoopla. That's what I like. And then they let they let me design a name, a variant of the hoopla, which we refer to as Electric Fuzz. That stuff is awesome. So thank you, many thanks to my brother uh, G. L. Hansen Sons. And last but not least, I got to thank my friends at Tormac. Tormac is celebrating 50 years of being in business with the Black T8 sharpening water cooled sharpening system. I am all in on Tormac. I wasn't for a long time, and it was all user error. Now every knife I make comes off the Tormac, and I have nothing but good results from the Tormac. Uh, it's made me a better knife maker by a mile. It's made me kind of dial in uh, my bevels and my my geometry, and I'm a definitely a better knife maker now. So definitely check out what's going on at Tormac.com or Tormac underscore sharpening on IG. Many thanks to Tormac. And I'm going to say this before my boy, my, my before my boy Brian House of... Uh, of the work for podcast among other things comes on. I have to say one last thing. I love my sponsors. The sponsors of this podcast do it for me and they're great. And I have conver- I have great conversations with them. I respect them all. The, the, the sponsors who sponsor this show, I have nothing but pro- I have no problems with whatsoever. But with that said, I have been in a situation where I'm, I'm finding myself having to be customer service for former sponsors of the show. I have to tell you, this is not this is not what I do. I'm not this. I'm not the customer service for former for sponsors. I'm not the customer service for new sponsors. I'll help you, but at the same time, I'm not. I can't help you if the company won't help them. So what I two this is a two part situation. One is is please, if you're having problems, please let me know. I'll try to help you. But at the same time, if you're a small company, and this is probably one of the things we're going to talk about with my man, Brian House, small companies have to do more than just provide a product. they got to have a little customer service. And that is a huge part of being a small business in this country, being uh, having repeat business and having a good reputation. So with that said, in terms of good reputations and good guys and friends of mine, I'm honored to have my man Brian House here for from the Work For Podcast for House Made Industries. He, this boy, it ain't nobody working harder than Brian House. Brian House, what's going on? 
Well, I uh, I just wanted to let the whole world know right here on this podcast that um, uh, it's funny that uh, Baker Forge and Tool is a sponsor of the show because they created Gator Piss and yeah. um, and what I love about it this community is they don't care if you steal their ideas, right? You can go out and you just copy whatever, and you can create your own product. So I thought uh, Gator Piss was such a great idea. I came up. I teamed up with a couple people here in the community, and we've created Pickle Piss. Oh, my Pickle God. Piss is, oh is straight out of Canada. It comes right out of the uh, this river flowing from a, a small area in the Maritimes. You can get Pickle Piss right from me, and well, it's pretty much the exact same product that Koi makes. Well, it's, just to let you know, before my lawyers send a uh, cease and desist, I've already established that Fader Piss is coming out. Um, I've been told that my friend Steve Connor said, you know, I don't know why you don't start your own effort and call it fader piss. So before we just, before we, let's have a nice conversation, but the lawyers will be involved shortly. <laughs> fader piss. Can you imagine? So the funny fader thing piss. is I mentioned that to, uh, on this podcast and then Koi says, we're going to do some fader piss. I'm like, I got enough problems in this goddamn community. <laughs> Last thing yeah. I need is to have a, have a fader piss for sale. So. Go for the pickles. Pickle piss. I tell you what, let's just start off by saying loving, loving, loving the Work for Podcast and the addition of Pickle Cutter has been a breath of fresh air to your podcast. This is the, uh, yeah, that's the long uh, joke there is that, yes, we've added pickle to the podcast. So if you uh, join us on the Work for Podcast and listen in, you'll hear. The sultry sounds, which I like to refer to as the gravel driveway voice of the internet, which is Nick Tobin of Pickle Cutters, and he is doing a fantastic job being our third. So it's yeah. Brian Cohn and myself, and then also Pickle, and he adds like such a great energy to our show. It's been it's been really a blessing to have him on. So well, it's very yeah. funny because I always thought that one of the reasons why Knife Talk does as well as it. Has done is because you have three distinct voices, and from a sub from a subconscious listener level, to be able to divide out who's who makes such a huge difference. So, I think you guys got that too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It, the voices are so different on Knife Talk. Yeah. Not just from an accent standpoint, but just from perspective. And you know, I love Mareko. I love Craig. Craig is uh, I got to give him so much credit for my success actually because he's the one that brought me into podcasting initially and i didn't realize how powerful that platform is until you know probably the my second or third blade show where i realized that more people knew me from the work for it podcast than any other media that i put out there and that blew my mind well just to let you know uh, this is this is here's some radio bullshit right here i'm giving you some radio bullshit i have been hawk i hocked him in china for years about doing this because all i wanted i said you know we could do we could have more shows i helped him this was my idea because all mm. i wanted was him to produce this podcast so then i came up with the whole makery network and then he and i kind of figured it out and he was, he was like who are we gonna get him we started fucking grabbing people but it was the makery network was completely because i just wanted him to edit everything together and post it so, so you're sti- you're you're taking the credit. Let's I am taking the credit. Happening. I am 100% good. taking the credit. And okay. you know what? It's just you and me. It's just you it's just you and me and Knife Talk now on the it, the, 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 the only people who stuck around. Everybody else kind of flea bagged off. 
You know, podcast, you know, anything with consistency, you have to love to do it. I mean, it really is a, a labor of love. And I love radio. Uh, I think I may have told you this on the last episode I was on here with, but I had a pirate radio station when I was in my early college years. And I loved it. I wanted to be heard. You know, I yeah. have a great face for radio, as my mom always says. So I was like, I really want to get out there. And I wanted to tell people my story. But back then, I didn't really have a story. I was too young. I was just a college kid. Uh, but later in life, as I would like, kind of become an older dude, right, I learned that you know a lot of my experiences, as long as I'm able to vocalize them and share them properly vocally, keep things interesting and so on, uh, they're very useful to yeah. a lot of people. And so people hear them, and they they get inspired or they, they think a little bit differently based upon the things that I'm saying. And I love that. So when I talk to people at like say maker camp or blade show or wherever I'm at, they, you know, and they tell me how much the workboard podcast means to them. It just warms my heart. Cause it's a true unedited version of me. It, you know, we don't edit the show at all. We just record, hit yeah. record and go, you know, and you can, you can get you get a sense of like okay this is what our work week looks like but also i usually try to spice it up with like a story of something that i've been doing business wise that usually translates to value to the audience which is the reason why i think it's so successful now but uh i appreciate it jeff for coming up with the makery man thank you so much <laughs> yeah that's me. right thank me from now on don't thank craig don't worry about him i for me it's always been and i've said this a million times i'll say it again it, radio saved my life and the reason why is because I was a latchkey kid. Parents were divorced. Parents were trying to pull it together. And I would go to a quiet, cold apartment at night after school and nobody was there. And then I was also home alone on weekends all the time. And I felt as though I needed to listen to something or someone. I hate the TV. I didn't have a TV in my room. And I listened to the radio because I felt like I was somebody was keeping me company and they weren't telling me what to do. They weren't uh, telling me what I'm doing wrong or I'm not, the schoolwork's not right. Or they were telling jokes or they were just being comfortable. I, w I felt as though, and the consistency of it made me feel as though I was being kept company by a friend. And then my first studio was in 1996 and I was by myself and I was 21 or something like that, 22. And I would have the radio on from morning until I left. And that was my only companion and I appreciated it. And, I, and it really kind of was one of those things where you feel like you're not alone. And so for me, I started podcasting about 13 years ago. And I knew that this is something that when it first started and I really wanted to do it, it was like I was the first couple of years I was just, we sucked. I mean, we sucked. And it was terrible. We didn't have anyone giving us any. We had people listening. But I listened back and it was just like, this is some bullshit. You know, this is some, it just doesn't, it's not good. But I, I'm always amazed that when I, at Maker Camp, I had so many people come to us and say how much Knife Talk and this podcast means to them. And I know you're 100% right. It, is, it, it feels like you're doing the right thing. Every, every single time you get on a microphone, like in this case, we don't know what we're really going to talk about. We, you and I had a loose sort of theme for yeah. today's show. But, you know, we, you know, you you don't really fully know where the conversation is going to go, which I love actually, because it feels more genuine that way where we're not just like, Hey, today we're going to talk about, you know, handle material and how to grind G10 or whatever. It's, 
more of a genuine conversation that where the well that's where people find the value i think when they hear our words and they see what we're up to and it's a it's a uh it's a unique situation that will only happen one time and it gets recorded and then sent out to the internet and i just truly love it so and you're a contribution by the way to the podcasting world just not even just through this but also knife knife talk as well is that you bring entertainment and value at the same time, which I think is a really important piece that a lot of guys don't realize. Like we have a lot of people that ask to be on our show and I don't do interviews all that much. I'm not a big planner. So I have a hard time, you know, organizing that whole thing and get, keeping people in line. But then also I'm worried that they're not going to be interesting. That's yeah. a really hard thing to convey to someone when you're like, hey, just so you know, when you come on the show, I want people to listen to it. Therefore, you're under a little bit of pressure to make some, you know, some decent, tell a decent story or at least bring some value and be interesting. And you would be surprised how many people clam up when they get on. I'm sure you're not surprised. You probably know what this is like, where you have to pull data out of people or interesting stories out of people. And it can be a little bit too much work, I think, for yeah. me. But, you know, that's why we just keep it Brian, Brian, and Nick, because it's easy for me to just get in the same room with those guys, have a conversation. I know them. I know them well. I, they're personal friends of mine, and we have a great, valuable conversation that people can listen to. Then you get a chance to hear Brian Cohn, who came out of nowhere, left field, man, straight out of central Michigan. This guy decides, I want to do a second show on the WFI feed, and I want to start interviewing people. It was a perfect marriage, because what it amounted to is, I didn't want to do the interviews, I didn't have time to do them, and he did, and he's really good at it. So when people ask, hey, can I come on the show? I'm like, sure, come on, talk to Brian one-on-one, and have a great conversation, tell your story, keep it, and Brian does a great job of keeping it interesting, by the way. He's he's just... uh such a fantastic uh, contributor to our community. I, I, I love having Brian on the show because we get a chance to watch his development professionally. You know, he's in his early 30s, so we're just seeing his entry into the professional world, which is pretty great. And he's very vulnerable. Like, he's very honest in regards to his failures, which a lot of people aren't as willing to do. I, I have nice little conversations with him, and I have always said to him, anytime you need any help, you give me a call. And... Interviewing's hard because number one is you don't want it to sound like an interrogation. You, it, you, it, and you have to do, and you were saying, you and I are saying, you were just saying that we, we didn't really have a, a plan. You don't know what's going to happen, the organic quality of what could happen in this conversation. There's this expression I learned from my wife, but I also learned from this hostage negotiator guy. It's called active listening. And active listening is listening to what the person's saying and then and then, but the active part is like, you know, interacting with the things that they just said, as opposed to, I got a list of questions here. We got to get through these questions. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. All right, here's the next question. So what happens is you got to avoid, you got to like bang the questions, you know, put them in the ground and then be active in the conversation and then react to the things that you say. And then all of a sudden things kind of become a little bit more intimate and, and, uh, Brian's doing a great job. Brian's doing a really great job. And um, it is really cool seeing the... It's a question for you. I'm under the impression there's going to be another 
WFI podcast. I mean, it seems like it might be in Europe. Is this? Is, do, am I allowed to talk about this? Yeah, yeah, you can you can talk about it. Yeah, Matt Bicker in Europe. Yeah, uh, he's DIY, DIY Europe. Here. Yeah, he approached me about doing a work for it. He's one of he's been one of my biggest supporters overseas for a long time, and he also manufactures any equipment that Housemade makes. He manufactures it over there. Uh, for us and sells it for us and so and supports it and does everything um and so he is a uh, integral part of our business and in europe it's like it's only net and i keep telling people like a podcast is a fantastic way to gain new customers they yeah. get a chance to learn about you as a business owner they get to hear you they almost feel like they know you and business is all about that people like to do business with whom they know and they like how do you get that out there well you do a lot of social media you do podcasts you do all that i did warn him though i said your first 50 podcasts are probably going to be pretty boring yeah and that's okay because just like your first workout sucks and your first you know painting sucks everything sucks it's okay that's step one take all those steps and go out and do it because you're gonna eventually get really good at it and really enjoy it so, uh, yeah, check out, uh, I don't know how to find them yet. I don't even know if they've recorded it yet, but uh, they're starting the DIY, or no, I'm sorry, Work For It Europe. And it, they're over. on Instagram now. I think you can find them. There. You're taking over. Work For It's taking over. It's taking over, baby. I mean, what are we going to do here? We, you know, I, I, there, was a, there was a portion of this conversation that I wanted to lead with Go just ahead. a little bit. It was a concept that i talked about on the weld.com podcast it was just on their podcast which is a fantastic podcast cast those boys over there are doing great work i met them at maker camp of course uh excellent time at maker camp if you're considering going you really should i got a chance to hang out with your boy cliff dufton and john ariani over there i bought hammers from them <clears throat> man i'll tell you i just the, i can see why you love those guys so much and you talk about them all the time they're uh salt of the earth type guys good dudes busting balls from step one oh. i mean it was like i'm in that that forge for five minutes and i'm getting my balls busted they're good it was they're, they made me feel right at home they so are they're outstanding so right so you were so, at well.com i we started talking about the 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 business of creating Right. You're making something to sell and you're doing these doing this work. And I had a conversation yesterday with somebody who I love and respect, who is an old time punk rock guy who's anti establishment still in his fifties. You know, he's holding hard yeah. to that, you know, anti establishment thing that I kinda let go of lots of years ago. But uh you know, he was saying, you know, fuck capitalism, fuck this, you know, this profit and this all this bullshit. And I said, whoa, 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 hold on. You know, I'm a big fucking capitalist. I believe in capitalism. I, it's a beautiful system. It brings more people out of poverty than any other system on the planet. I truly believe in it. However, I agree with you. Lots of income inequality. There's all kinds of problems that we have in the system, of course. But it's still, in my opinion, the best way to do it. So he agreed. We kind of went on with the conversation. And I said, look, this is the way I see it, right? My job is to make tools for people that make things. That's what I do, essentially. I solve problems for people that make things, and that's really a kind of an awesome job. Like, I just fucking love my work. I do it every single day with passion and purpose. What I discovered, though, was the symptom of my a lot of my uh, depression over the years and issues that I had, mental health problems, they were all really related to one constant 
theme, and that was I was bored. I didn't have anything to do, hmm. and I wasn't as I wasn't working as hard on I wasn't be, being used to my full potential. Let's just say it that way, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I was sitting around a lot, and I and I felt like I needed to be tactile, need to be creating things and making things because there's a big side of me that's an artist too, and I love making things that are beautiful, and and I'm not very good at it, but I'm I love doing it, and. What I my argument for him was is I said, look, guys like me exist because I need to. Obviously, I love making money. I love commerce. I think it's a fantastic uh, scenario where a guy can dream up something and create it and sell it and make a margin on it. I think it's a beautiful process. But at the same time, I think my work is even bigger than that, where it inspires others to go out and do the same thing. Go out and make something. Like I get to make tools and then I get to use them to show people how to use them and inspire them. Hopefully they'll buy from me. But in the and you know, if you don't buy from me, cool. Go out and build your own or or buy something from somebody else that gets you into your workshop and you start making and creating things. What that did was for me is it I started to see all of these people who just so happen to be my friends and customers I saw their I saw their lives starting to change you know they're making a little bit of money they're they're buying or building tools they're learning new skills they're being empowered whereas before they were not empowered they were they were kind of just like guys hanging out in cubicles or some of these guys who are disabled veterans that didn't have anything to do they got stuck in uh, situations where they were um inside of addiction uh you know they're leaning heavily on substances to uh give dopamine hits or they're too much on social media they're doing all these things cuz they're all chasing a feeling they're trying to yeah. like go back to where they were when they were in their 20s when i was making stuff and it was beautiful and i was in sculpture class and creating things and i was my most productive and now they're just like pushing a pencil or you know running reports or at worst case they're sitting at home because they're disabled and they can't actually work and my argument is you can, and you can pull yourself up and out of that situation. But you need a guy like me that might be creating some weird content on the internet or talking about it on his podcast. And then one day, bang, you pull the trigger, you walk into your workshop and you start making stuff. Then the other portion of this is, and you know what? You're kind of one of these guys too. You know, your story is very similar. You got laid off from a job you liked, you, you know, you, you were working with your hands and you, you figured out you wanted to make knives and you just started doing it and you had support and you went after it. And now look at who you are. It changed your life. Well, you dramatically shifted your entire existence professionally not really. to create the life that you're living. Kind of, sort of, because the, the layoff was, I mean, for me. What's interesting is, is like, I don't, I've been making, I was a fabricator and a sculptor for a long time. I just worked, I ended up being miserable at a job and then getting an opportunity to work for a, a friend of mine who was a contractor. And then he laid me off and then we had to do some things, but I was always making sculpture. So for me, the interesting thing is I never really changed my life. This is a continuation of the years I was making sculpture and have galleries and I had a studio anyway. Could so, you live off of the sculpture income? If I had done it more, yes. Okay. That's the reason why I ended up working in fabrication shops. And I liked it. And I worked at, that's how I got involved with the Center for Metal Arts, too. But you so, live off of knife income now. Well, 
yeah. I mean, yes. That the answer is yeah. You, you, yes, I do. So yeah. professionally, you you'd say that you changed into you took making and created making to be your income source. Mm, yes, yes. The answer, yes, your honor. In a roundabout, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. Not yes, that it honor. wasn't that. Yes, way. your honor. Yes, your honor. Yes, yes. This your is honor. what I'm. This is my argument. Is that you were always making things, but maybe the one component of it wasn't there. Like you couldn't make a living at doing it because a lot of artists can't. They have a hard time making a living at doing something. And when when you listen to the Work for It podcast, you hear business in the workshop. And I try to educate guys like, hey, listen, this is what a healthy margin looks like. This is what customer service looks like. This is what logistics looks like. And you have to have all of those things in order to run a business. And, I, you know, because a lot of these guys are just thinking, well, I'm going to go out and make a knife and then I'm going to, you know, make this my job. And it's like, okay, there's a lot more to it than just making the knife. Speaking of a lot more to it, I would suggest that my all a lot of the reason why fader knives worked is because of my age and perspective having worked in restaurants having worked in metal shops having worked in other businesses having forged for quite a long time and understanding materials and stuff like that but but it was more along the lines of my perspective at the time i don't think that if i was 21 i would be in the same situation and a lot of it is because I have worked in, I know what it's like to work hard in a metal shop. I know what it's like to have deadlines. I know what it's, how hard it is to, to I know how hard it is to be uh, uh, dedicated and organized and uh, disciplined enough to execute the creativity and create something from your head. But it, if it wasn't for the time of struggling and working in other jobs and seeing the way bosses are and seeing how business is done, I wouldn't have been able to do this and that this is actually something i wanted to i like to talk about in terms of the concept of the perspective of age and experience in order all of it matters you know the things that you do through your entire life influence how you're going to do what you want to do does that make sense yeah i think so because think here's an, here's another example can you rephrase it for me well, I mean, the perspe my perspective now at 49 is different than it was at 30. I didn't have the life experiences of working for other people or seeing how things are done or working for a shop or seeing how you budget things or seeing how you not be wasteful and seeing how you come to work and on time. My history of working in other jobs and doing other things informed my decisions to be able to be in business. Like I couldn't I have done this at 21. Couldn't I, have, I didn't have the experience. I believe that experience is underrated. And the experiences that you have in your entire life help inform the decisions that you make later on. Does that make yeah, sense? I, oh, adult, yeah, 100%. Because I couldn't do this shit. I couldn't do this shit at 21. And I tried. I had, I had a studio. I had galleries. I was, I was able to work, but I was sucked at business. And I was unable to. I was unable to make it happen because I didn't have the business acumen nor the discipline or understanding of what needs to happen in order to do it. I think that if I had to make sculpture now and just make sculpture, I think I could make a better go of it than when I was twenty-one. Ah, interesting. Same. Here's I see an what you're saying. Here's yes, another example. Course. Here's another example. I'm going to be fifty in less than, in about a month. My dad was 50 when he had me. So if he was still alive, when I'm 50, he'd have been 100. 
he had two other kids when I was when 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 he was in his thirties, and then he had me in fifty. He was a different father to them when he was thirty mm-hmm. than he was to me at fifty. So the, his perspective of, of growth and his perspective of being a father at 30 influenced his decisions when he was 50 with a fucking newborn. Can you imagine being 50? Can you imagine a newborn right now? I, I know you're not, you're not, you're not even 45. I, the thought of me having a newborn right now is like, as a worst, as the worst, <laughs> I can't think of a worse nightmare right now than having a fucking newborn. But he had the, the, his experiences of being a father of two, you know, 20 year olds to kind of fall back on. And it made him a different father with me than with my sisters. Same thing with being a business. Like you can't, you can't, Will Stelter is going to be a different guy when he's 40 than he is now. And he's going to have better ideas in what he wants to do with his life then than he will because of the experiences he'll have did i, yeah, did I, did I derail your good did, point no 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 not at all. you're 100 percent right i think uh, you make a great point and i think the takeaway from that is that you i think you see how commerce works now and you have a better understanding of it now than you did 20 30 years ago and so it's important, like you, anything you decided you wanted to apply your mind to, you could probably make a pretty decent go of it. Well, I mean, and you prove that. It'd be nice. Knife. It would be nice to think I could. But I'll tell you one thing in terms of that concept of perspective. If I wasn't working for Charlie Palmer in the restaurant industry and had a real in the, you know, grass in the, what is the expression? Real grassroots, how to be a customer service person. The customer service of Fader Knives would never be as good as if I had never done any kind of customer service before. Like our customer service is dynamite. I don't get any complaint. I don't get people don't complain. People don't lose. They don't lose their fucking minds at me. I go out of my way to make sure the customer service experience of Fader Knives is as good as it can possibly be, maybe even more than it should be. And really a lot comes from my that. perspective yeah. of the experience I had in the restaurant industry. Yeah, you're only as good as your customer service. You can royally fuck something up. And if you have the right attitude at the customer service level, you can solve all those problems for the most part. I mean, we have a couple of customers and have had a few customers over the years you just can't make happy. Right. Uh, But that's not our fault, I don't feel like. But uh, you're right. It's all these little pieces of owning a business that are important to pay attention to. You know, we talk about that on the podcast all the time, the 50-50 rule. Uh, 50% of your job is to make whatever it is you're making, and the other 50% is to sell it, right? And if no one, if you don't sell it, no one knows it's there, and you can't make any money doing what you're making. So selling is just as important as the making, you know? And you guys are doing a great job of that, by the way. I love the newsletters, the emails that you send out. They're always funny. You've got those hooks where it makes me want to open it and it makes me want to read it. Even though I may not be in the market for a knife, I open it and read it anyway because it's entertaining. Well, that's funny enough because I'm trying to make the people in the, in the office laugh. So we're trying to do, I'm trying to do everything, you know, I don't want to do boilerplate stuff. Don't talk about me. One of the things that I'm interested in is, and I feel very guilty about, I feel very guilty about, I feel like, I feel that knife talk but we've been doing it for five years, almost coming up on probably six coming up. We've been really focusing the knife talk on the business end of knife making. And what happens is, is there, and I think that Forge and Fire is to blame as well. We've 
kind of given the idea that you can learn how to make knives and then learn how to sell knives. And I feel strongly, I, there have been times where I've had conversations with Craig and Mareko. So, you know, we should just do an episode where it has nothing to do with making money. We should just be the love of knife making and it just never happens. And one thing we get so many questions where I'm sure you get a ton of questions for, for work for it. I mean, you make it about business in the workplace. I feel as though, I feel as though there are expectations from the listeners that are slightly unrealistic. And I feel as though everyone's almost too hard on themselves when it comes to starting out into business. Because there's so much, like you said, there's so much to it that you just, there's no handbook. There's no hand, well, there might be a handbook, but it, there's no way to, I think people are being too hard on themselves, frankly, is what I'm getting at. Yeah, a lot of makers, they're in a bubble. The mental health is a, something we talk about all the time on the show as well. Uh, I was just on a podcast called Hatch Made It. And Andrew is a is a uh, studying to be a psychologist, and he wanted to bring me on because he heard me talking about mental health and on the podcast, and he was like, "Hey, will you come on and talk about that?" And I'm like, "Sure," you know, because I think uh, <clears throat> the majority of our audience is men, and right. we're we're not like you know, there's not a handbook out there for you know male emotion. You know, we're not allowed quote unquote allowed to express ourselves. And I think that's why we see such high suicide rates and all, but it's in men. And I, and that's another argument I have for making things and why I tell people like, you, you want to make something, go, go make it. You know, the end result might not be what you want it to, to be, but it, at least you had tried and, and you worked through a process, which is the reason why I love knife making so much because there's so many different aspects of learning there. You know, there's not just metal, it's you know, other things, wood and, heat treating and understanding how things work. There's, I have a very good understanding of materials now. Even I feel like every year I learn something so much more different than I did the year before, and it still all revolves around knives. So the business end of things can go fuck right off because you know I don't sell knives per se. Yeah. But I am in that world, so I have to kind of understand it. But the thing I'm seeing now is a lot of these guys are coming up with different concepts for products or ideas that they want to make, and they're doing that because they're branching out away from knives that might still be in the metal world, but they're making something else. And I, I'm 100% with you when I, you say, like, I wish we could talk about the creation side of things and leave out the sales end of things because it just kind of takes away from the well, it inspiration puts pressure portion. on people it does you're right it does and so because a lot of these guys can create some of the most beautiful pieces in the world but they don't know how to sell them and they don't know how to price them they don't know how to move the product hey just let all that go you know just start building your customer base maybe start building your your following and then see where it goes from there you know and take away all that pressure of making sales uh, I have an interesting situation in my shop. It's because I hired Brent, who is a knife maker, part-time knife maker when I met him. And he's making this one knife, basically. You know, he started making this thing called the Thicker Clipper, which is his flagship product now. And uh, he was using my grinder, and that's how we met. And he lived in the same town, and now he works with me every day, and I see him every day. I would consider him a, a very close friend. 
And, you know, there's periods of time where he goes for a while without selling a knife. It's just how it is. And he does a great job on socials. He pushes, he makes reels, he's making lots of content, just nothing sells. And then one day he's like, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to go to a gun show. I'm going to get a table at a gun show and I'm going to see if I can sell a knife at a gun show. And now it's his regular routine. He does really well. He, he sells knives at a gun show. Hmm. And he started thinking outside of the box, you know, on how to sell something. And uh, he just got back from Miami. He was over there doing his thing and had a great weekend there and met a lot of interesting people. You know, you're at a gun show. You're going to meet a lot of. Right. You're going to have a lot of stories. And it's that type of thing. He doesn't need to do it. He has a job. He works with us. He loves it. Right. He loves doing it. It's part of the work that he does. And I see that. Uh, I see about 90% of the people out there think, I'm going to make something and it should just sell itself. Right. And it, and it just doesn't. You know, and you know that. I know that. You have to keep constantly reminding people that you exist and that you're here. And that's the sad part of creating anything at all is that, you have to be a salesman, and most of us just are not. And hey, what are you going to do? This is something I talk about as often as I can. As you know, we're doing. We're. I mean, I have you know between my, me and my business partner. Plus, we have two employees. So, you know, both my partner and I are employees. You know, it's it's how do you figure this whole stuff out? And I say this as often as I can. I'm not Neil Camamora. When I put stuff up, it doesn't go in 20 seconds. I'm not Montana Knife Company. When it goes, when I put stuff up, it doesn't go in 20 seconds. There are times where I'll send a newsletter out, and I'll we'll have a weekend where nothing happens, or something sells that we didn't, you know, somebody will buy something that wasn't meant to sell, and it's it's hard, and it's hard, and it's I think that for me, um, the joy is, and I think I part of me wonders, and I'm bringing this back to what you said about capitalism. Part of me thinks that the, the the subconscious love of capitalism for you especially, and if for me it would be a hundred percent. It is. I used to love making sculpture. I love making sculpture. I'm make, I'm working on some sculpture now that for no other reason than I just want to, and it's the best reason of all time. I don't have a gallery. I don't have a show. There are no deadlines. I'm making this big ass sculpture, and I'm having a blast. Even if I don't get to it, I'm having it in the middle of the shop, and I'm looking at it. I love it, and I'm doing it because I love it. I love fader knives because I love the I love the satisfaction of can I move this company along? Can I have deadlines per day, per week, per month? Can I be disciplined enough to run an organization with employees? Can I be disciplined enough and, and will I receive the satisfaction of we're doing what we're supposed to be doing and I'm yeah, I'm manifesting it to happen. And part of me thinks that that's why you like it because it's not just the money. Obviously the money is important, but it's like you have an idea, you're executing the idea and the idea and it's working. I believe that the ultimate satisfaction isn't just the money. The money is the, this, uh, you know, it's obviously it's a, uh, a tangible, uh, it's a tangible medal of success or a, per, you know, whatever. But at the same time, it's the satisfaction of, uh, accomplishing your goals. Yeah. Yeah. It's all a challenge. You know, it isn't uh, the money really. No, no. The money is important. It's important. Cash flow, But yeah, it, uh, for me, it's a challenge. I set goals every month and 
I want to hit this goal and I want to make that sales number. And I also want to create this many products this year. And I want to solve this many problems this year for people. And I want to go around and I want to meet people and talk to them about how they use my tools. That was one of my favorite things about being at Maker Camp, watching Cliff and John and you use my forge while we were there. It was just mind-blowing, you know, to watch these guys who I have a ton of respect for in that world using my tools as if they'd owned one for a hundred years. You know, it was like they just had had one their whole lives. Uh, it was awesome to watch, and it, it was very cathartic for me. It made me feel like I was doing something with my life that I had value. That I it, it was the, the ego was there. Yeah, you know, it was like. Pump, pumping full and um it got me emotional at times too you know just i look back on those videos you know and see those guys using it and and um our time together and it just it's it's a very fond memory it had nothing to do with whether or not i sold one or not you know it none of that it was just that i made that thing this was my contribution and those guys made the other things with my thing hmm I'm not good at making things so much as I am, you know, uh, making tools. So, you know, my contribution is that. And yeah, I feel like when I see you do your sculpture work, that there's something more to it because it gets you away from the, uh, I just saw a picture of you like standing on, in some wood shavings and you're doing that vertical, uh, the big vertical lure. Uh, that you're just carving down and, and working on. And you could see in your face a genuine sense of accomplishment and pride in that work. You don't give a shit whether or not somebody pays you a hundred or $5,000 for it. The fact that you went and made it is what's important to you. That comes across just in that one photo. And I know you, of course, so I, know, I, understand, you're, I understand where you're coming from a majority of the time. But it's... Those things, like when I make these stupid ashtrays, you know, I started making these cut-off steel ashtrays that weigh a million pounds. Why do you say stupid? Why do you say stupid? uh, They're just uh, things that are, you know. No, you're right. I shouldn't shouldn't, uh, demoralize them like that. It's a a piece of art that I make, a functional piece of art. They're great. They're these monstrous ashtrays. They're huge. They're great. Yeah, they're fun. They're they're amazingly fun to make, and the challenge of making them is is great. And some fa- very famous people are in my DMs wanting them, which made me even feel very even more, uh, you know, I, my head couldn't fit through the door that right. day. And it was like this is this is awesome, you know, to like be part of this community and stuff. And then I made like five or ten of them, and then I'm like, yeah, you know, I I'm gonna move on. I'll make something else. Um, but. Uh, I I see those things in my workshop and I go, I fucking made that. You know, that makes me feel good. Whether I sell one or not, doesn't matter. It's just I love making them. So um I get that sense from you in the in, with your sculpture work. A little aside, one of the interesting things and, and this is something I'm at some point I you got to go down the Center for Metal Arts. You've got to oh, go down the Center for Metal You've got yeah. to go and forge and, and take some classes and see what they're going on. One of the interesting things about one of the sculptures that they were were doing, and the interesting thing about the sculptures that they're doing at the Center for Metal Arts, they're so monumental. It's because their hammers are so huge. And I've talked about to Pat Quinn a lot and stuff like that. What he was doing was he was taking this huge, these huge pieces of steel that were torch cut and then kind of forging them down, not too dissimilar to your ashtrays. If you do some torch cutting on the outsides and then 
push your push down your press and then push out you'll you'll notice a different texture this is the part of sculpture that's so fascinating because what you're going to start to see is one of the beautiful parts about your ashtrays is how the steel moves and when you when the when the top pin comes down how it pushes the inside out this is blacksmithing it's the idea of when you push down and it goes out what happens well if you texturize the outsides of your ashtrays before you punch it you're going to find a million different opportunities for some really wild textures mm, torch cut yeah. the torch cut on the outsides are going to blow your brains out blow your mind okay. blow okay. your mind because it what it does is you know how it it, it does what's called pooching almost where it's like it it, it, it sends everything out through the middle different this is the sculpture part and that's why i don't want to i don't want you to hear i don't want to hear you say these stupid ashtrays because you what you're going to start to notice is you're going to start to notice when you do things before you forge it or press it you're going to see how the steel changes and you're going to see different opportunities and this is what sculpture is it's these small evolutions in what you're doing in order to move along and find your way yeah you're right oh dude dude i this sculpture to me has and blacksmithing has changed my life and a lot of it's because my art teacher used to say don't just start running around doing all sorts of things have a logical progression know where you came from and everything should be a short evolution of what you're doing which to me i was going to ask you so like all my knives i see i know i can see the lineage there's a lineage every single knife i've done there's a lineage from one to the next and you could trace it all. You could trace them all back. It's almost like uh, you could see, like the you know that picture of the evolution of man. Uh, my knives are like that. Every single one of them. And I just designed this knife that I'm fucking wild about. And uh, I was gonna save it for next year, but I'm so hot to do it. I'm gonna have it within the month. And it came from my friction folders. And it, I wanted to do a, a pocket knife, but I didn't want to do folding knives. And I figured this whole thing out. And Is every the Tanto thing, yeah, that, working that on? thing, oh, I fucking love that. Well, that thing. thing yeah. Well, it, what's interesting is, is it saw that little time. We're calling, we're calling it the, uh, we're calling it the. I don't like say shop utility. I don't say something. I don't say these Japanese words. I've never felt comfortable because I feel like I'm just, I don't want to say it just to say it. So I'm calling it the Blackbird. The Blackbird shop knife is what it's going to be. Oh, and like this that. is the first time I've been able to design the knife and the sheath together. Because usually when you make a knife, the sheath is an afterthought. You know, the sheath is just to kind of protect the knife. But the problem is with Kydex is you have these limitations because the Kydex doesn't allow you to put clips in certain ways. And I hated that. I hated the fact that it wrote, wrote I, if you put the clip on up under the bolster, all of a sudden the th thing's up in your back. And yeah, so this is the first design I've ever had where I designed the knife and the sheath together to create something that was great. And it's like, it's been in my pocket for four days straight. I forgot it's even there. It's an eight, eight inch knife altogether. And this is how the evolution of ideas come from. And I was interested to know how, because you design so many different things, how does your design process, where does it come from? How, how do you start coming up with the ideas that you're going to make for house-made industries? It always starts with a problem. Right. You know, it's, that's it. you got to solve a problem for a bunch of people and then sell it to them, you know. And we're, right now we're developing this thing called a hold fast, which is... It came out of uh, Brent 
and I uh, are I'm helping him make these thicker clippers and on our off time in the shop. And my one of my jobs was to drill out all the holes in in the tangs of his knives. And I started doing this work, and I'm like, how do people do this safely? You know, it just seems like a very not safe uh, operation. And he's like, well, I have this clamp, and I use this, and I'm like, you know, there's got to be a better way for this. So I developed this table that clamps into a vise that sits on top of the table that exists with the with the drill press, which sounds redundant, but mm. it's not once you see it. Um, and it has this clamping system that holds things down, and then it's got slots where you can lock in, say, a one, two, three block. Huh. And what this does is it creates a stop, and it creates a flat, keeps your knife flat on the flat surface of the table, Locks it in place, and if it were to dislodge, it would get caught on the one, two, three. No helicopters. So very simple. No helicopters. Very simple. But it's a problem we all have and we all face, especially if you're a production knife maker. You're drilling a lot of holes, and uh, so we had to make it universal, you know, and try to figure out, okay, if you got this drill press, how do you make it work on that, and so on and so on. Um, and we figured all that out, and you know, kept it under sub two hundred dollars, you know, with all the even a one, you even get a one, two, three block for that. And there's a margin in that, and I can sell it, and I can make a little bit of money at it. And that started with a problem. The Forge was a, a little different approach. The Forge was something that um, I would listen to the um, Working Hands podcast, and they do this thing called Make What You Fear. And for the longest time, I'd been kind of fearful of fire. You know, working with a Forge is dangerous, and there's a lot of um, opportunity for risk and failure. And so when I joined up that program with them where they did this Make What You Fear challenge, I said, you know what, I want to design a forge. And I was only going to make one. You know, I was just going to build one. And so, of course, in true house-made fashion, I'm showing the process and I'm hashtagging and tagging the working hands guys. and, And all these people now are following my progress. And I thought, you know... The one thing I did really dislike about my old forge was having to reline it, you know, pull yeah. it all apart and everything and clean it. And I said, why don't people use fire brick? You know, it doesn't make sense. You know, some people do. I've seen it, but it's not like a commercially available thing usually. And uh, so I built a f- my first forge, the first Apollo, and I used fire brick and I used a ceramic liner and it worked great and it felt safe. You know, that was the other part about working with the Apollo is that you're able to close it up. It feels safe. It's just big enough to do knife work. It's not huge. It's not too small, not too big kind of thing. And of course, everybody wanted one, right? You know, and so I produced 50 of them. They sold in four hours. Wow. I produced another 50. They sold in seven hours. Wow. The same day I produced, I said, all right, I'll do another 50. We sold out the next day in seven hours. And now there's hundreds of them out in the wild now. Um, and it's because I think people just obviously want to support my work, but I also solved a problem for them. Yeah, They were all in the same boat. I have a forge. It's falling apart. I don't want to reline it. I don't want to use wool. I want to use something that's simple. I don't want to weld. I want to just pull a bolt off, lift the lid, and replace a fire brick if it needs it. It also has to get hot. It has to be able to forge weld. All these things. And we saw the problem. Now I make so many freaking ribbon burners, Jeff. It's like crazy. And I I make them all myself, by the way. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And um, 
you know, we're selling out every week. It's just as many as I can make, we sell them. So you're it's selling just, the parts simple. and then they put them, I mean, I, I, yeah. I can imagine you guys are all have back problems. What do you, what, they're not, they have, what, when you buy an Apollo Forge, what, as the consumer, what do you have to pick up besides you got to get some air delivery piping, like two inch pipe. You got to get a few brass pieces to plumb your pro- propane in, and you got to get the blower, the little fan blower. We don't sell those. Uh, you, all this stuff is readily available on Amazon. We have like a full resources page. We make it very simple for people to go out and buy their their stuff. And then um, you got to buy the fire brick to okay. put on the inside because okay. we don't sell that either. You know, you get the. You get the shell, and you get the burner, and you get the Inswell ceramic liner, and you get uh, the doors and the refractory. There's a little bit of refractory on the doors that are required. And that seems to be very, it meets a really interesting niche, because there's a lot of guys that are just DIY enough that are willing to do that amount of work. You know, there's there's a little bit of drilling, a little bit of tapping. It's not terrible. Um, They've got some investment in it. But believe it or not, that's the difference between that forge being seven hundred bucks and that forge being fifteen hundred. Right. Is those drilling and the tapping and the bending yeah. and the you know, so they do that themselves and it saves them thousands of dollars. They can just build it and and by the way, you don't have to buy the parts from me. You can buy the plans from me and you can uh, if you have a plasma cutter, you can cut them out yourself and build yourself one or modify my plans, which is even fun, more fun. A lot of these guys buy my plans. They have a little bit of CAD experience, so they go in and they make their own version of this, you know, where huh. it's a little bigger or maybe it's wider. You know, there's some guys that do that. So it's it, we're solving problems. That's literally it. That's the basis of my are entire you, business. Are you still enjoying it? Uh, it comes and goes. Yeah. You know, um, just like anything, I think, uh, you know, I think I enjoy it when times are good. Yeah. Just like anything, you know, I enjoy it when the money is good and the customers are happy and I dislike it on Monday mornings when sales are down and customers are complaining or, you know, I've got a supply chain issue or I've right. got a machine shop guy that didn't, you know, didn't do what I asked him to do, um, you know, and, but that's life. That's the human experience. You know, you, you can, you can find uh, negativity or positivity and light in anything. If you, it just depends on how you approach it. I will still, to this day, hold true to the concept that I am unemployable. You could not hire me to go do anything, but I'll, I'll work eighty hours for myself for half the pay. Always. Yeah. That's just who I am. I'm, I'm dumb like that. You know what I mean? I, I just would rather be my own boss and and be the leader of my own destiny. Because you know. All of this could disappear tomorrow. I am. I come from a generation of people who lived through a very terrible financial crisis in this country and the world, uh, for that matter, and a freaking pandemic. And I know just full well that tomorrow everything could be different and it's completely out of my control. So today, I'm going to do what I can. And I'm going to have a great time as much as humanly possible. I'm going to do it. Are Which you... is the reason why I'm on this podcast, by the well, way. Well, I mean, we're friends. I mean, yeah, no, but I know. love this podcast. And I wanted to... Co- I said this to you on at Maker Camp. I said, "Yeah, I got to be on the show again." Yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm, so I'm glad thrilled you, you asked. Me. I was thrilled you asked. You know, I, I was thrilled you asked. Do you enjoy? Do you enjoy the content creation? Yes, it's you like do. My favorite. Oh, That's your favorite part. Oh, I love it. I, yeah, really. 
you know, it, it depends on what it's for. If it's, if it's real sales driven, which I do a lot of, it's not my favorite, but it's the creative shit. You know, like, like when I get a chance to set up my camera and take like those slow motion shots of me pressing those ashtrays out and you got the fire going and you got, you know, it's like, I feel like fucking Picasso, you know, I'm, I'm just like, <laughs> I'm like, uh, you know, I'm figuring it out. You yeah. Know? I'm like painting this picture and some of my reels, you know, they go into the millions. People are watching from all over all corners of the earth. Uh, and I get recognized sometimes, which makes me feel famous. And it's like, it bloats my ego, you know, and it makes me feel good. But at the same time, it's because I love what I do. You know, people can, you can hear it in my voice and how much I enjoy talking about, you know, the, the, uh, the creation of a business or commerce or whatever it might be. That is something that is just deeply ingrained in me that Hmm. I enjoy. The social component of it, I feel like is how I express myself. And it has to be somewhat salesy at times. You know, I have to show, hey, we've got this many parts in and here's the discount that we're offering or whatever it might be. Um, or here's the project I'm working on and I'm using my tools to make it. And here's why I think you should do that too. And then, of course, like I get DMs and videos of people all over the world using my tools. And it's, dude, I've crazy. left something behind. It, yeah, it's crazy. I left something behind that's beautiful. I didn't just go out and, and no offense if you're a used car salesman, I'm just not out there selling used cars. I'm selling dreams, man. I'm selling things that change people's lives, that make their lives better, improve their mental health. And, uh, and recently, I, I mean, I've been talking about this quite a bit, where I just stopped drinking alcohol. You know, I, I stopped all substances because I had noticed that I would look in the mirror and I would see an old man. And I, I just didn't recognize myself anymore. And I, there was a period in my life where I struggled with the addiction. You know, it wasn't terrible. I wasn't like guzzling a fifth of vodka every night or anything like that. But I, you know, I'd have a couple glasses of wine every night, and and I started to notice that it was a dependency. And I realized if I want to do better and be better, and I'm also somebody that people look up to, I need to really, and not just my kids, but a lot of other people around me need to know that. You know, I've got a solid mind that I'm not just out there, uh, you know, preaching this stuff and not living it. And uh, so I, and you and I had this conversation at Maker Camp, so I stopped drinking. And then I, I just realized, okay, I got to do something with my time now. I'm going to go work out. I'm going to run. I'm going to get healthier and look at my diet more and improve my life. And it was like, all of these things are kind of a result of the work that I do. Yeah. You know, it's because I wanted to take care of myself so that others could see that I'm an inspiration to them. And that, granted, I use the term sober loosely, but being sober in life is not as boring or uh, lame as you think it is. If you have interests, I think it all comes down to if you have interests. If you have interests, then it doesn't, none of it matters. But I don't think people Agreed. have that many interests. That's the problem. Yeah. It's that they're bored. And then they end up in this cycle of addiction. I or, remember or depression. When I started when I started the Center for Mental Arts when I was thirty I was thirty. So thirty something. My daughter was yeah, I guess I was probably like thirty two or thirty three. I got I, you know, lived a life of, you know, making sculpture and working out. I'm working hard. It never really worked out. I did a little bit of running. I ran a little bit, but Nothing crazy, and I remember getting going to get my blood checked, and they and they said that my at the my, for my age that my cholesterol was a little bit high, 
And I was just, and they were going to give me all these, tell me what to do. And I said, I went to culinary school and I don't need recipes. Don't worry about it. I'll figure it out myself. And I really was like, that was also a time where we were doing, forging thousands of pickets a day and it was very strenuous. And I felt like I was, I had to not eat burritos for lunch. And I had to really kind of treat myself like a, some degree of an athlete because I had to get back to work after lunch. That was the beginning of me and also making the decision. I don't want to be 60 and have to make drastic changes. I'd rather be 30 and start to kind of pull it together before I ha before a doctor says, you've got, you, you're past the point of no return. You got to make some changes. So I started tw uh, 20, uh, 20 years ago, changing my diet and my habits to the point now where I'm, this is the best I've ever felt. And, and I don't, I don't do, and the drinking is one of those things that I don't really do a lot of drinking anymore because it just, and you know what, I hate to say this and I hate to tell you this, but you look at yourself and you say, you're an old man, you're an old man and I'm an old man. I can't take it like I used to. 20 years old, I could drink a six pack and it wouldn't be a big deal. I have one beer. I got to look at the alcohol, APS, whatever. And I know that I'm going to be fucked up in the morning after this one beer. So I had to make decisions if I want to be, how do I want to feel in the morning? And that was, I'm 100% with you. Yeah. It didn't add anything to my life. It took away. You know, that was the other part of it is that I felt like it just was not, it was not adding anything to my existence. And I wanted to be of clear mind uh, always. And so I just decided like, I'm going to stop it. And that, you know, I heard that same concept, these same words, for the most part, coming out of Jimmy Duresta's mouth, you know, numerous times yeah. on his podcast. And I think it empowered me because I looked up to Jimmy, you know, and I, I realized like, damn, man, like people have influence, certain people will have influence over you and you have to um, realize that you have influence over others as well. And so that's like important if people look up to you, if you're a leader of sorts. Um, in the community or a community so anyway not to get on my health things but i i do feel great and i've been um you know running and I, it was funny because i ran pretty much every morning at maker camp and i i ran from my hotel down to maker camp and ran around the uh grounds you know there where all the tents were and stuff when it wasn't super muddy and in it was funny because i'm just running past all these people they're like what the hell is house doing it's six in the morning. He's out there running around. I don't get an opportunity to run in the cold outside, and especially in the in the terrain that is the Poconos, right, or the uh, Catskills. Uh, it's like the Catskill Mountains, beautiful place. And I'm running through this like kind of idyllic, I uh, cool weather, you know. And I'm like, man, life is good. And that my work brought me here. You know, that was the other part is that I'm hanging out with all these great people, talking, working, creating forging concepts and ideas and also doing business all at the same time. And that was what maker camp was. So, and my work brought me there. So that's next it. year I want to run with you at maker camp. You want to run with me? Yeah. Let's do a maker camp runners club. Maker. Well, we don't have to, I mean, we can make a big production <laughs> about it, but I, I, I love running. And you know, yesterday was the New York city marathon. Oh, yeah. And um, this is the first year we didn't watch it. We didn't watch it, but I did it 10 years ago. I was in the New York City Marathon. Did you run the whole thing? I ran the whole thing 10 years ago. Dude. And it was, it was, for me, the New York City Marathon was the only marathon I ever wanted to do because growing up in New York City, I, we used to sure. watch it. And, I, and it, was this, it was this also a psychological thing because for me, running is I got to know where I'm going. 
like I can't run blindly. Like I need to, I need physical, I need physical like milestones. So my sure. mentally know how far I, I'm going to be going after. I know this tree means I'm going to, you know, five miles in, I know where I'm going. So New York City Marathon was just like, I can do it. But the problem was it was too big. And I trained great. I trained on asphalt. I got up to 22 miles in my training. My training was dynamite. I felt like I felt great. But the concrete killed me, totally yeah. killed me. And I, and I yeah. want to do it again so bad. I was going to try to do it again this year, but I just, you know, things just didn't go my way. But I'm definitely, with, without question, I'm definitely going to do it again. No question. I want to do it too. It's so funny you bring this up is that uh, I told Sarah that I'd love to run the New York City Marathon. It's amazing. I had a friend who was a, we called him Cheetah. He loved to run. Uh, he's no longer with us. Uh, he ran the Boston Marathon numerous times. And, you know, I'd love to run it for him and his three kids uh, and just go and do it. And, you know, I, I run like 12 to 13 minute miles. I'm not like a, That's I'm not nothing wrong fast. with that. Yeah, I'm not fast. I just, who I'm needs, running. who cares? Yeah, and that's kind of a marathoner's pace, is from what I I understand. It's yeah, like it's yeah. I was that. doing I was doing the best I was doing was probably like a over over the whole thing was like a ten minute mile. Yeah, that's great. And but it, it's it's I mean the I'll I it was the without question the hardest thing I ever did. My knees started giving out halfway through, and then um, the emotional roller coaster that you your the chemicals in your brain start rolling around halfway through. And at one point I'm crying, one point I'm angry, one point I'm happy, one point I'm crying again, one point I'm angry again. It was literally like I was out of control of my emotions, but it was amazing. And I would definitely, I definitely want to do it again. I'm in way better shape now than when I was practicing then. And I, and I definitely want to do it again. And so, so I'm curious when you cross the finish line, yeah. what, what was the emotion? Thank God it's over. It's over. Thank yeah. God it's over because I had, my knees were like, like I said, my knees were in bad shape 13 miles in and just like when you know that you got another 13 to go and your knees are not well, it's like, it was, it was torture. Um, and then my family saw me in different spots in the city and it was like, I was crying. My daughter was, had a little sign up, you know, go dad and stuff like that. And you just start fucking crying because yeah. you don't have any control over your, I mean, you're, it's such a physical exertion. You have no control over anything. And I, at one point we p p crossed the finish line and I'm standing next to this. I'm walking, we are walking to get our bags. You go through the finish line and they keep you moving because you, they've taken your all your stuff from Staten Island and brought it to like a, you know, shipping container and you're walking and I'm standing next to this stranger. And I said, and I just, I don't know what the fuck came over me. I turned around. I'm like, I'm angry. Are you angry? He goes, yeah, I'm angry. I'm like, what are you mad about? He's like, I have no idea. Oh, what are you mad about? I'm like, I got no idea either. I'm fucking mad. But it was this wild, weird New York story. It was just like, we were just, you're just overcome with emotions and it's, uh, it's great. I mean, it's, I would highly recommend it. Now it's too hard to just get in it. You, I did it with, uh, I had a friend who was on the Michael J. Fox foundation and then I had to raise three grand or something like that to, you know, be on the team. And I was on the Michael J. I ran on the Michael J. Fox, uh, Parkinson's team. It was great. Fantastic. So let me ask you something. Now. Uh, what's next for you? In, ter in terms of what are you looking forward to? You know, 50 years old. Oh, okay. What are you looking forward to now? Well, he, it's, it's very interesting you say that because my wife and I, we're in this new stage in our lives because our daughter's in college. She's, and the, 
we're kind of, I hate to say it, but we're kind of doing a bit of a victory lap because our daughter's had, she had a good head on her shoulders and she knew to get out of this town. She had to have good grades and she got into the college of her dreams as she always wanted to. And it exceeded her expectations and she's not scared out there. She's working her ass off. She's doing everything she needs to do. We're kind of done. I mean, she, when she, the problems that she calls about are stupid problems. And they're like, you know, uh, it's, it, I locked my, my card out. How, you know, can I, how do I get to the security office to get a new card to get it? Stupid stuff. So we're doing kind of the victory lap. Um, I feel as though we've succeeded. The success is already there. I, I've not passed on. My wife and I have not passed on the generational traumas that were inflicted upon us by previous generations. We did not pass that on. So our kid is very well adjusted. So it's it's that whole scene is great. So the goal now is I want fader knives to grow, and it is growing. Uh, it's growing slowly, but I like slow and steady runs. I don't like high highs and low lows. I like it right down the middle with a little bit of acceleration going up. And we're there. We're going to do 10% better than last year. I'm not worried about that. And every year I want 10% growth, 15% growth, 20%. I want, that's what I want. I want to be able to provide more to give my wife more. I want to I want to give back to the people who have helped me through my life. And that number one person is my wife. So we're our plan is I want to we want to move. We want to stay in the area, but we want to get a different house. We've been we sacrificed our whole lives for our daughter and we stayed in the same house. We hate this goddamn house, but we decided that we were just going to like buckle in so we could afford college and thankfully she was a merit scholar so she got a lot of that i'd like us to move that's a goal and then i'd like the business to grow so i can make more sculpture that's that's the goal that's the and and to be more grateful um one of the things that my wife says we've had some friends of ours die of cancer uh early and she said to me growing old is a is a privilege and I really take that to heart. And because some of her very close, our close college friends have died from cancer and we have friends who are going through cancer now and growing old is a privilege. And I want to make sure that when the time comes, I, there's not one thing I, there's not one moment that I, I regret. And then we're getting there. How's that for an answer? That's a great answer. You you seem very enlightened. Oh, dude. That's, uh, you know, in your, situation or your position you know I, th- I, th- I think in terms of like you know you were saying your father was 50 when he had you yeah and that is an uh an age where most men are winding their lives down right a little bit, you know right and he's he was winding it up but i like what you said about that like he's a different father because he had a lot of experience raising these other kids and uh, your your half uh, siblings and so it's interesting, but I, I also um, have this, uh, <clears throat> I have this uh, kind of um, idea too that you know you you have worked through a lot of your anger and your life experiences, and you have not you've done a very conscious, intentional job of not passing that on to your children, and that is such a huge accomplishment. I can see where how that would feel and yeah. i hope that i've done the same thing i'm i really do think about that a lot and in fact i just had a conversation with my mother and my father and they lit you know my mom and dad are in their almost in their 80s now 
and they i they my mom's like you know you're always talking about how things were so hard when you were a kid and things were different and i said well that was my perspective you know that's how i saw it right there was a lot of fighting about money and there was a lot of um situations where you know i needed shoes and we couldn't get shoes and you know whatever i'm like right. you know look it made me who i was you know and they're and my dad's like well, well i would have bought you the shoes i'm like yeah but you couldn't have you didn't because you couldn't and he goes he and he you know the look on his face like it was almost like i he he really felt bad you know yeah. he felt terrible and i said look i'm not criticizing and i'm not saying i'd want it any other way and here's the reason why it's because it made me the man who i am today that's it I'm the guy, and I like who I am. I love Brian House. I love me. And it's because of all these experiences that we shared as humans in, on this blue and green ball flying through space. When that you, time together, it made me who I am. You, you said a couple things that I want to get to. One is when I, when I, a lot of the things I do is not as enlightenment is very important to me. And I feel as though I've the past 10 years, I've been seeking a degree of enlightenment. I believe I found it, frankly. I mean, it sounds crazy, but I do believe I found it. Um, but the funny thing is, is I do a lot of stuff out of spite. Spite is underrated. And, mm -hmm. and I did a lot. I wanted to be a better father than my father. And I think I, and I know that I was, I want also wanted to be a better small business person than my father. And I, and I've accomplished that too. And what's interesting is, is in finding that enlightenment, it all comes from it. All of it, a hundred percent comes from blacksmithing. And I'm trying to be a little bit more, I want people to be a little bit more mindful in regards to what forging actually is. And I take it. I, and one of the reasons why I, I, I'm, I feel very connected with Pat Quinn, he and I have had long conversations and here I am the same kind of wavelength in regards to what forging is, but forging changed my life. And what it is, is people need to stop just saying, oh, you got it hot and hit it. There's a philosophy in forging. There's a philosophical, there's a philosophy in forging that's changed over time. And that change has been now it isn't just a trade. It isn't just like, you know, you, you know, send your kid to be an indentured servant for an apprentice or a blacksmith and then they're making stuff. Now you have this idea of this, this creative craft, this artistic craft that takes a degree of discipline to execute and to, to show you your th mind. And I'm gonna, well, here's how I'm going to explain it. When you take a piece of steel and then you have a project, you have to be very, very organized in your decisions. Forging is performative. Forging doesn't require calipers unless you're a mental patient. What you do is you're taking a piece of steel, putting it in a forge, and you're thinking about exactly what you're going to do when you pull it out. You know where you are on the anvil. You know what hammer you're using. You know how you're going to hold it. You got your tongs squared away. It's the ultimate form of discipline and organization. And what happens is, is because you're manifesting your organization and your technique on this piece of steel, you're moving in a one direction that's forward. You can't go back when it comes to forging. 
There's no moving backwards. You're 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 understanding and you're completely compared you're completely prepared for the next step. As we know, the expression is strike while the iron's hot. You have a limited amount of time, you have a limited amount of carbon in the steel, and you're creating this degree of organization and execution of technique and principle to for, go forward. And when the whole thing's done, you can see how your brain has or your mind has been muddled. You can see where you're focused. You can see where you had problems. And then hopefully the next one's going to be better. So when I started to kind of think about forging like a philosophy, I started to say to myself, well, if I can do it here, why don't I do it in my life? Why don't I do everything like that? Being organized, being disciplined, knowing exactly what I'm going to do. When I, sp I spoke to uh, 150 chefs at... Uh, Stone Farms and Blue Hill, and I thought, and I need, I knew, I knew that if I was super duper prepared and knew exactly what I was going to say, it was going to go well. When I do these podcasts, I know what's going to happen. I know I, I prepare. I'm not nervous. I know what I'm going to do. And what's happened has made me a better father. It's made me a better husband. It's been made me very thoughtful in regards to how I am with other people, and I feel as though there's a real. It's a very important philosophical thing that has changed me from my core from my core and it's made me a better person i owe it all to blacksmith one of my favorite possessions is the friction folder that i purchased from you yeah and i and for a few reasons one of which is what you just explained because you have this illustration right where uh you show all in watercolor and and you draw it out like all the different people you know the different movements of this it's like a it's like a dance really that you're doing with the steel and you're transforming it and i don't know if i'll ever have the patience or the skill to do that you know to to actually i probably could if you showed me you you could walk me through it fine but i see it and i think that all those steps took place in order for this one uh object to be created right and i get to hold it in my pocket and use it for utility because i do use it and i also think about you because uh, i consider you a friend for many years even though we just met yeah. like personally just met but i i believe that there was a little piece of you forged into that piece of steel that i have in my pocket and a lot of your concepts all the years of experience were boiled down to that one object at that particular moment in time, and I own it. I have it, and I have that piece of you. Well, so that's why I think so many people want to buy handmade items now because we've lived in a society for so long where we don't really know, truly know who made our things, and some of those things are arbitrary. They don't mean anything. But I think we're becoming more... Um, intentional with our purchases uh and i know i am i guess because maybe later in life i have a little bit more disposable income where i'm able to do it but i also love the idea of being able to support something that someone's doing you know uh, a little bit of money that i gave over for that knife you know doesn't make a huge difference in your life but it's like a vote of confidence and it's also like you know that's a thing that you made and you sold it it's a fun thing to know that you can do that um, so anyway, I appreciate well, that knife so much. I wanted to tell you that on the show because it's, I, it's, I handle it every day. I look at it every day and I, and I'm, you know, always opening and closing it and looking at the subway token and, 
and seeing, you know, the the design, the lines, all of it. Well, just it's to tell there. you where the money's going, I'll tell you exactly where the money's going. Is I have I'm having a Christmas party for my team, and I'm putting together Christmas bonuses, and we're putting together a big Christmas dinner. So oh, we nice. always take them. I take my guys down to Chinatown. We do a little dim sum. We, everyone gets a everyone gets an envelope, and your help that was in specifically for you know being able to kind of thank my crew. So that that's I think that I think that that's very important in regards to kind of knowing where your money's going. Your money is going into thanking my crew, and that's oh, where I want it to go. Great, that's great. Yeah, I love it. My, I thought you were going to say it was going to go to pay for uh, the college that your daughter was going to. Well, we already. Uh, <laughs> that's another situation. <laughs> but at the same time, I got real lucky with that kid. She got uh, mar- um, the the school that she wanted. We had been saving since she was a kid, and, since she was a baby, and we really didn't. We just started just taking chunks out of our paychecks, and we got real lucky with her because she got this giant merit scholarship. So she's getting a huge chunk of it taken out, and then, you know, now maybe if she wanted to go to graduate school or law school or something like that, we can you know get a little bit of a leg up on that. But you got a good one, man. Uh, yeah, she did. did a, she joined a. She joined a off the campus Habitat for Humanity club because she wanted to give back. She felt as though her, her, her high school, uh, her high school. She was very politically active in regards to being helpful in the community, and she didn't feel like she was getting enough of that in college. So she joined the Habitat for Humanity in, uh, out in California. I'm really very proud of her. You should be. So she's. Amazing. Yeah, she's a good kid. So listen, what what's going on with you? What are, what are we looking forward for you, Brian House? You're about well, to be what, 45, 46? I am going to be 47. 47. And, uh, 47 coming up here. You know, uh, I don't, you know, I'm, I think I'm looking forward to my kids being out on their own. I've got a few years yet. I have one. My oldest son, Dexter, is going to be enlisting and uh, going off to basic here in a few months. Wow. And that's a big that's a big deal. And then I've got two other children. Our daughter is um, right behind him, so she's one year behind him. And then we have a 14-year-old. So we've got all mix of, of uh, time here. So i got another five years of that. I think uh, I'm looking forward to, like you, being able to slow down a bit and focus more on creative work. Yeah. And, and because it gives me so much back, I think. Uh, not that I dislike my work at all. I don't. It's not that. It's that I would love to be under less pressure so that I could uh, focus a little more on, you know, these creative endeavors. But if I die tomorrow, I'm a happy dude. I got, I mean, I've lived a great life up to now and I don't have any regrets at all. I just, uh, you know, I would love of course to add a little bit mix of color and creativity in my life and a little bit of travel and that's it. I mean, I, I honestly am doing all the things I want to do with my time and I get to work with my family. You know, Sarah, my wife, is uh, works with me full time. And Dexter, it's every day after school, he's in uh, with a work program for us at Housemaid. And I get to see them, my family, every single day in both a, a personal and professional level. Huh. Which, no, I don't know if you know, but it, there's a lot of families out there that can't work together, and we're not one of them. We get along great we do we're a team we organize and get things done and it's just uh it's been a huge huge blessing to my 
my mental health, everything, just being able to um, go to work and just know that my family's around and, you know, I get to hug my son every day, tell him I love him. And, you know, it's, it's a, uh, it's a great, it's a great feeling. And then he's going to go off to basic. I won't see him for a while. You know, he'll be off probably three, four years uh, in the military. And then, uh, then we'll have to kind of see where we land after that, you know? So. Is he excited? Uh, yeah, he really is. I, you know what? I think the conversations we've been having is not so much about, um, you know, the, a lot of people join the military for different reasons. Right. You know, some don't have another option. You know, they don't, you know, Dexter has lots of choices. He could, he could be doing a lot of different things, but the, the main uh, theme of our conversations has always been uh, learning discipline and fully understanding what it means to serve huge as, you know, instead of take, right. So when you go into the military as a young man, I truly believe on the other side, you have advantages that a lot of other people do not have. You know, you've got the advantage of learning how, you know, keeping, um, keeping your house clean, if that makes sense, discipline. And you come out, uh, you go in a boy and you come out a man is what I think. And not that Dexter isn't a, a young man. He is. But of course, I wish I would have done it. And I didn't. Uh, and, you know, I, you and I were both kind of the, around the age of 18 there was a lot of conflict in the Middle East and a lot of our buddies were going off and serving during that time on the first Iraq conflict. And I saw a lot of my buddies come back different. And I also saw a lot of um, my buddies not come back at all. And so I realized, you know, I'm a big pussy. I can't do it. And I didn't. And I wish I did. I really do. It's one of, that's probably one of my regrets is that I didn't go into the military and I didn't do that. Um, but I get a chance to encourage my own son to do so. It's interesting you mentioned that because I've talked to my I was talking to my wife about it uh, probably the last couple of days. Is I was my father enlisted after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, and his mm. brother enlisted too. His brother was served and was on the beach of Normandy, and my dad served in uh, in India. And during the the first Gulf War. I was a senior, or no, it was a senior as a junior. I think it was a junior. And, you know, my teacher was a, a Vietnam vet, and he was talking about, we were talking about that, and we were talking about draft and stuff like that, and all my friends who were also saying that, you know, bomb them into the Stone Age, and, you you know, you can imagine what New York City prep school boys, you know, from, from, the, from the late 90s were saying. And I was the only one, and I was the only one, they were all, they said, he said, well, what would you do if the draft came back? And all these guys, all these tough guys, they were saying, oh, I'd go to Canada. And I was the only, I said, I, I'd enlist, because my father enlisted and my uncle enlisted. And then when I, I'd, I'd thought about it for a long time, and I went back to my dad, and I said, you know, dad, I want to enlist. And he goes, you're not enlisting. You're not enli I'm not letting you enlist. And I said to my mom, well, you know, your brother enlisted. He served in Vietnam. Um, I want to enlist. I, I feel very strongly as a, you know, as a, uh, they, they wouldn't let, my dad said to me, I wouldn't let you enlist. I won't let you enlist. You, I will not let you enlist. And it was, that was a, that was a, um, that was, I, I always felt, I wonder how my life would have changed if I had done it. And I really kind of wanted to, but I was also very, terrified my father so that wasn't gonna happen your your fathers fathers have significant influence over sons you know even if they're strong-willed kids you know they do and um you know we had the conversations about he could choose to go to college like right after because we saved money too we put money away in a 529 
for all the kids right. to go yeah. and they have money they could go but uh the it, you know dexter's like i'm thinking about going into a technical college you know maybe like studying mechanics or you know he's like a lot like me likes to take things apart and uh i said look you're gonna go in the military you're gonna get paid to learn all that stuff i mean you're gonna you, I, yeah it's a little tough you're gonna have to go through all of these things that are going to be uncomfortable but you're going to learn a lot while you're there. And then when you get out, you're going to have the GI bill to fall back on right. where you can, you know, uh, go to school basically for, for very little money. Whereas if you decide you want to go off to a technical college right after high school, you'll pay to be there. And then you'll come out in the in negative, you know, you're not going to have uh, the money that you would have had if you had made money during the military. I said, there's so many benefits of joining the military now that it would be, in my opinion, the best, course of action for him you know i of course don't want to see him go off and fight i don't and that could it's a possibility everybody's like well what about all this stuff going on in the world and like there's always stuff going on in the right. world we, we're never going to have full peace time it, it just doesn't exist right. we're human beings that's what we do we fight and um you know i said it, it, it he's smart he's going to get good uh, test results which he did he got like a very high rank uh, test result on his uh, paperwork so they're like, you can pretty much pick anything you want. You know, you can go into this branch of the military, pick what you want to do, and we'll train you to do it. And like, I mean, then they're going to pay him to be there. You know, what's better than that? Right. Uh, so I, I believe that that is a uh, the good path for him. And uh, of course, our daughter, very artistic. She's drawing all the time, painting. She's a, uh, a just a, a very, uh, with zero training. She's a just out of the box artist and so she's talking about tattooing she's talking about all kinds of things so i think i'm excited about seeing what they do with their time you know we've sarah and i have given them excellent examples of what it looks like to be a, a, a contributor to society you know you're you're out making money you're being a part of a community you have friends that are a part of that community that are also your customers you're building a life that's professional life that's something other than um, you know, maybe some less meaningless work that just doesn't mean a lot to you that might be self-driven. I feel like I'm a part of something bigger and I hope our kids follow that same path. Well, they have, they have, they have the right to. My sisters, know? when I was a kid, they used to say to me, we're worried about you because you don't have any interests. That scared the shit out of me. And I learned well, Did how, you or did you not? When I was interest? like nine or 10, I didn't have any, I like comic books. Well, you know, so yeah. like, but like That's they normal. scared the shit out of me and they were just like, we're concerned that you're, they, and I, you know, it's, I really felt it, that's a, an underlying important thing in your life is to have interests because ultimately all the money in the world don't matter because you, unless you're, you know, mentally uh, challenged or you're, 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 when I say mentally challenged, I mean like, are you st mentally stimulated? <laughs> Even like you got to be mentally stimulated and otherwise it's like when, when the toe, when you're, when you're, when it's time to punch your ticket, that's it. You know, all that, all the Corvettes in the world don't matter. You got to, you know. Fader, chiseled jaw, and that was good looks. So it only lasts so long. You know, you, you had to, you had to go off and do something with Dude, yourself. Dude, those, shit, those, 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 I, I wasted my time with all the, I, I, I had him. I had him. I had the world by the balls when I was nineteen years old. You could old. have been an underwear model, dude. I, I mean, was supposed I, to be in movies. I was supposed to be a. On. I was a terrible actor. But I was going to be. I probably. I could have been in one of them Melrose Place or something like that. I could have. Didn't. Didn't make it happen. Didn't make it happen. Brian well, House. You've got what's it now. Next. You've got this podcast now. That's, that's fine. That's, that's your, face that's for radio your too. To I could be the old yeah. man on the radio. It's fine. 
Brian House, what's next for you? What's next for Work For Podcast? What's next for Housemade? Tell me what's next for Brian fucking House. Uh, well, I'm, I think all I'm going to do, keep doing is what I do best, and that is solve problems for other people. I'm going to continue to do that and make tools, support those tools, and give, give uh, you know, create a lower barrier of entry for anyone who wants uh, good tools in their workshop. And also, I think, and I'm going to say this right now, I got a couple of pretty big motivators, some things that I want to do that might sound crazy to some people, but I'd really love to go on the Joe Rogan podcast. I'd love to be a guest on his show. And I've reached out to him a couple of times and I just haven't heard back, but I'm sure it's just whatever. I'm, I'm not big enough yet. That's okay. Uh, I also, um, I would like at some point to write a book. I'm, I'm really formulating some chapters of, of a book that I would like to write. And I think an integral portion of writing that book is ultimately my success. So my success has to continue and, uh, and get bigger a little bit. You know, I don't, it, it's like I have this idea in my mind where I'd love to inspire others through a book and write my story down and just tell my story and hopefully inspire others. And, uh, and that's kind of it, you know, that and just keep making tools and, and inspiring others through social media and creating fun projects. And also uh, uh, forging new relationships and holding on to the ones that I have, and that's it. I, I live a good life, man. I uh, success is the best revenge, and I've got all of it. Look at you, Brian House, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. That's Brian House. You gotta listen to him on the Work for Podcast, where you get all your other podcasts. Uh, you can follow him on Instagram. It's Housemate on Instagram. And you could see you, you join his mental patient Facebook group. <laughs> you want to get wacko? Join the what is it? DIY grinders on Facebook? Is that what it is? Yeah, DIY bell grinders. Ah on man, you want to get you want to bang your head against the wall? Go follow twenty five thousand morons. <laughs> I mean, fantastic. you want to talk about a? You want to talk I'm about driving the short bus? <laughs> I mean, you want to talk about a pit full of vipers? That's the one for you, man. You got your own pit full of vipers. All the time all right guys listen to me i want you to go follow brian i want you to listen to his podcast i want you to support what he has to do as a good dude he's my friend and if you're if you're a maker cam next year you can grab your pair of running shoes and run with us we're gonna run to maker camp we'll see what happens we'll find I out brian thank you once again you always have an open invite don't be afraid to ask uh you're the man i'm i'm lucky that you're my friend and i appreciate the hell out of you I appreciate you too, Jeff. Thank you so much, man. I love being here. All right, guys. We'll see you next week. Thank you so much. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.